1: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on
2: the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Ben Cohen, and if that name sounds slightly familiar, he is the sports reporter covering the NBA for the Wall Street Journal and the author of a new book, The Hot Hand, The Mystery and Science of Streaks. If you're interested in things like statistics and analytics of sports, how the basketball game is changing, who is driving these changes, what is happening in the world of sports, and why the old days of just hiring a superstar and hoping he can drag a team over uh, over the line is, is pretty much over. I really found his book to be quite fascinating, and I think it's something that if you're either a math or a sports geek, you're going to find really intriguing. So with no further ado, my conversation with Ben Cohn.
1: This is Masters in Business
2: with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Ben Cohen. He is a reporter for The Wall Street Journal, where he was the first person to exclusively cover the NBA nationally for The Journal. In 2017, he was named a News Media Alliance rising star. He has a new book out, and it's called The Hot Hand, The Mystery and Science of Streaks. Ben Cohen, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be
3: on the show because so much of this book is actually based on past episodes of your show. So it's a treat for me.
2: I I have to tell, I have to reveal this. I'm reading the book on vacation in Puerto Rico. And because I'm an information junkie, I go to the sources and acknowledgments at the end. Nobody reads that. And lo and behold, there's my name and Masters in Business because of the Tom Gilovich um, reference but what I thought was so hilarious was as I'm reading the book, I'm like, guest, guest, had him, had him. It, it just cracked. Oh, that's an interesting name. I should get him. I, it was really fun going through all these people who I feel like, you know, you spend 90 minutes or longer in a room with someone, you kind of get to know them a little bit. So let's get to know you a little bit. You're an undergrad at Duke. How do you end up at the Wall Street Journal? Uh, bribery. Bribery is always a good thing.
3: No, I, I, I worked really hard at Duke. I, I, I've always known that I wanted to be a journalist, and specifically a sports journalist. There, it, It's a deeply uncool thing to say, right? Like, there's some people who grow up dreaming to be astronauts and flying to the moon, and right. I wanted to, like, cover Rutgers for the Star-Ledger in New Jersey, right? <laughs> um, so I went to Duke, like most um, kids who like sports in New Jersey, and uh, I was the sports editor of The Chronicle, which was the student newspaper at duke and and
2: at at duke that's a real position it's It's not like most
3: schools it's it's a real position and and the paper itself is a real newspaper i mean it's a daily paper i i definitely spent more time in the newspaper office than i did in any classroom i mean we were working the top editors of the paper there work like 60 70 hours a week it's a crazy job and so um when you're covering duke basketball you're really competing with like everybody on the planet right right um and so that really gave me great grounding and um I got lucky a few times along the way with some internships and some other opportunities. And um, when I graduated, a couple weeks before graduation, the journal was looking for a sports intern. They had just started a sports page, and the person they had hired to be the intern had taken a job elsewhere. And so literally two weeks before graduation, the sports editor of the paper emailed me. We had talked in the past about a potential internship, and he offered me an internship. And I kind of kept my foot in the door and didn't let it close them and didn't let them close it on me,
2: and I've sort of been there ever since. (laughs) The role you now have is NBA reporter for the journal... That was not a role before you got there, was it?
3: Uh, We did not really have any roles in sports before I got there. Uh, We started a sports page around the same time that I was hired. So 2009, Murdoch buys the paper in like 07. Get that
2: kid Cohen in here to start a sports page for us. Exactly.
3: Rupert and I go way back. (laughs) And uh, uh, so for the first few years I was at the Journal, I covered college sports. And 2014, we didn't have a national full-time NBA reporter. And I still think one of the reasons why I did get this job was that it was like July 10th, 2014. And our sports editor, this brilliant guy named Sam Walker, looked around and said, oh, my God. LeBron James is about to choose his next team, and we don't have someone to write the story. And he sort of pulled me into his office and said, I think that you should cover the NBA for us. And I said, Sam, you're just saying this because we you need someone to write about LeBron going back to Cleveland. And lo and behold, the next day, he goes back to Cleveland, I write the story. But it turned out to be this incredible stroke of fortune, because at the time, the NBA was about to enter this like real golden age. So, I, I still have never covered an NBA Finals that the Golden State Warriors were not playing in. So it's been um, five years in a row. May, perhaps
2: this is the year. Where I, that, I have a feeling that players. this will
3: be the year yeah. that the Warriors don't make the finals.
2: So now let's talk a little bit about how I first found you, which was the article about Josh Miller and Adam San Giorgio's paper on the Hot Hand. Tell us, what the hot hand is. So the hot hand there's really no singular definition, but I
3: like to think of it as when success leads to more success. Now in basketball for example, the hot hand has always been studied through basketball, which is one of the things I sort of found irresistible about the whole phenomenon. In basketball it's when you make one shot and then another shot and then another shot and you feel more likely to make your next shot.
2: He's you, on fire. Marvel in the zone.
3: Say, You're on right. fire. Um, but it's He's not He's unconscious. But it's really not just about basketball. I I think of this as about human behavior. I think Mm -hmm. we are all familiar with this feeling of the hot hand. And what I've learned is that if we take advantage, it can really change our lives. So this book really started with two stories in The Wall Street Journal in 2014 and 2015, both calling into question this seminal classic 1985 paper about the hot hand. One was by this team of Harvard undergraduates, so not grad students or PhD students or professors, but kids in their college dorm. Amazing. And one was by Josh Miller and Adam who who did this thing where they looked at this very old problem in a new way and they found something that nobody had seen before. And usually what happens, I have to say after I spend a lot of time thinking about a story and writing a story is that I don't want to think about that story oh, anymore. Leave right? I'm sick of right. it. The opposite really happened here. I couldn't get the hot hand out of my head. And I just thought that there was something bigger here that I wanted to explore. And that's how, you know, I end up spending three years writing a book about it.
2: So let's, let's step back a second. And, um, Tom Gilovich is now a professor at Cornell. At the time, I believe, was it Stanford undergrad or Berkeley undergrad? They were grad
3: students. Tom Gilovich and Bob Malone were grad students at Stanford. and uh, a guy, Professor
2: Tversky. Who, the great
3: Amos Tversky right. was a brilliant professor there. And they looked at the hot hand because they thought that it was this beautiful way to illustrate this phenomenon of seeing patterns in randomness. And it still is, right? Like, I I do want to stress that. Like, I find that paper hugely admirable. It's a brilliant paper, right? Because it uses this thing that we all know, this very accessible, digestible example of a cognitive bias. Um, They end up publishing this paper in 1985. It's in the canon of behavioral economics, right? It's one of the most famous papers ever written. It's really easy to understand. Like, there's nothing really obtuse about it. It's a great paper. It really holds up Um, with one
2: small exception.
3: Sure. If yeah, exactly. But um, something amazing happened when this paper came out, which is that it was so unbelievable that people just simply refused to believe it. We had all felt the hot hand and seen the hot hand. And now these professors were coming along telling us there was no such thing. And that was really hard for us to wrap our minds around in the same way that. It's very hard for us to wrap our minds around randomness.
2: So I love the image of Red cigar, unlit cigar kind of hanging out of his mouth. I don't care what these professors say. Of course there's a hot hand. And there's nothing that could have delighted professors more, right? Like this,
3: (laughs) just believing in the hot hand doesn't make it any more true. And Amos Tversky used to love to tell this story. When he taught the hot hand, he would tell the story of Red Auerbach because he loved the Boston Celtics. And like, what better way to illustrate this idea that people refuse to believe than Red Auerbach saying that it was all a bunch of baloney.
2: And as much as the conclusion may be mathematically inaccurate, the underlying premise that people see patterns where there are none, that we're all subject to our cognitive biases, that still holds up and that's still a key part of that paper. Completely.
3: Uh, And not only that, even if you do believe in the hot hand, like, I don't think it is this exaggerated fireball of our imagination, right? Like you can miss when you feel hot. And also like there are plenty of times when you are in an environment that does not allow for a hot hand and believing in the hot hand can be disastrous, costly, it could really backfire and burn you. And so I do think um, that paper is still really important. And we should all read it. I mean, part of the whole fun of this concept, I think, is figuring out what you think about it for yourself, right? And toying around with the idea and seeing where you land.
2: And and as a long-suffering Knicks fan, going back to the John Starks era, where he would just, you know, a streaky player, and whether the shots were sinking or not he would still reel off seven eight nine shots in a row whether they fell or not didn't matter he would when he felt it he heaved it regardless of outcome the knicks are familiar with streaks they're just not the kind that knicks fans actually would enjoy (laughs) to say the least so what i found so intriguing about the original paper about the hot hand it was incredibly controversial what was behind all the pushback well, it defied something that we all
3: thought to be true, right? And we are not very good when people tell us something we are
2: convinced of isn't true. So my, one of my favorite examples of how easily we're fooled is uh, you give the example in the book, but we've all seen this from personal uh, life uh, experience. Uh, a professor assigns a class, flip a coin a hundred times and write it down. And I want some of you to do it, and some of you make it up. And immediately identifies, these are real, these are fake. And the class is always astonished by this. What does that have to do with streakiness and our tendency to see patterns where none are there?
3: So this is an incredible statistician at Columbia named Andrew Gilman, who runs this very popular blog, um, which sounds kind of uh, like an oxymoron, like a popular statistics blog. From, a little wonky. Yes, <laughs> but um, but it's a brilliant Website and um, you know I talked to Andrew Gelman about this and what he told me about how he is able to tell his classroom to uh, he splits his classroom into two and he tells them like you know one group flip a coin the other group imagine what it looks like when you flip a coin and then write the sequences on a chalkboard and I will walk in and I will be able to tell you which one is real and which one is fake. And so he leaves the classroom and he does essentially this magic trick for a, st- for a statistician, right? He comes in and he always knows. And it's because the real one is the one that looks fake.
2: Right? It has a run of str- of heads in a row that you're not comfortable, you'll do heads, tails, heads, heads, tails, but you won't do seven heads in a row. That just seems wrong.
3: But we all know sometimes when you flip a coin, you get seven tails in a row, right? right. But you would never do that if you were imagining what a, str- a string of coin flips actually looks like. And now
2: you've ruined that trick for him in his first class. Everybody. Yes, well,
3: hopefully everybody at Columbia will read this book, so he will not be able to uh, to pull off that trick anymore.
2: Let's talk about the miller San Giorgio paper. On why the hot hands is real. First, and and I think you may have been the first popular press to cover that. It, I was, yes. Because okay, that's how – not only is that how I, I found you, but when I was preparing for the interview with Joshua Miller and reading all the all the coverage – Yours was the piece I found. I'm like, oh, this does a really nice job. Well, and the reason I remember
3: this is not because I'm bragging, but because I was terrified when that story came out. It was very nerve wracking because uh, the math had been rubber stamped by mathematicians, by Andrew Gelman himself. Like the math was accurate. However, the journal is really not in the position to be writing full stories about preprints, right? Papers that have not been peer reviewed or right. published by like journals that you can trust. And so this paper was floating around the internet. It had been uploaded to SSRN and Andrew Gelman had written a blog post about it and people were talking about it. But like if if this paper had been published in Econometrica, which it has been now, it's very easy for the Wall Street Journal to write a story about that, right? right. But when it hasn't, suddenly it's, it's just these two guys these two young American economists in Europe and a statistician with a blog saying that it's right, is that enough for the Wall Street Journal to write a story about? I decided that it was, we decided that it was. So let
2: me tell you why you were right. Because the worst case scenario is that Econometrica does the math and says this is wrong. But at the time, not only is this a really interesting thesis that identifies a fundamental flaw in the Tversky-Gilovich paper, but it's really a whole new area of analytics for data sets. It's not just the hot hands. These guys figured out something really, really interesting, and lots of people were buzzing about it, and it's not just a blogger, it's Andrew Gelman of Columbia, who is a widely respected mathematician and statistician. He he is
3: their peer review. Right. Right. He's peer review before peer review.
2: So so I don't think you were that far out on a ledge. And the worst case scenario is some of the smartest people in math would have gotten it wrong also.
3: And I have to say the funny thing about this is that I, let alone Josh and Adam, got the same reaction that Gilovich, Valone, and Tversky did, which is, there's no way this is true. Over the course of 35 years, that paper, which was so counterintuitive at the time, became conventional wisdom. It was, and it was the way we thought about the hot hand. And so now, here was this paper threatening to overturn that result in this uh, strange mathematical way that takes a lot of thinking to write about. Like, there was a reason that nobody had seen this, right? This this very subtle statistical bias that some of the world's brightest statisticians had missed for many years. It was this bias hiding in plain sight. And if it had been obvious, we would have seen it many years earlier. So let's talk about that bias because
2: it is very intriguing. It's very trippy. It's Ex- also intriguing. <laughs> explain why. So normally, if you're going to flip a coin, hold the gambler's fallacy aside Every flip of that coin should be 50-50, heads or tails. But it's not. But but you're not just flipping a coin. You're looking at it after the fact, ex post, and, and saying, of the flips that follow two heads in a row, it's not 50-50. Explain why. Well, I will say the one
3: thing I've learned in thinking about this book and writing this book and talking about this book is that... Uh, I'm not great at talking about this part of the book. It's very it's it's hard even for me as like I, the best thing I could do is like say actually go back and listen to your episode with Josh Miller because he does a better job of explaining it than anybody. But what I will say is that it has to do with um, with sequences and 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 sampling without replacement, right? And and figuring out. Um, when you look at a sequence of even three coin flips, if you look at the the average chance that you will get a heads after a heads, it's not fifty percent as our brains are conditioned to believe. It's actually lower. It's it's biased in a negative direction.
2: So you start with the you flip a coin a million times and now you have a data set. And if you pull out all of the heads and heads in a row, you're not just pulling out half the heads, you're pulling out more than half the heads relative to what's left over. So what's left over is going to be a little
3: tail heavy. Is that is that a fair way to describe it? Yes. And then the next obvious question is like, well, what does that mean for the hot hand? And really what it means is that for many years, for 35 years, to be precise, we thought that if a 50% shooter was shooting 50% when he had the hot hand, when he felt like he couldn't miss, that was evidence against the hot hand, right? There was no difference. He wasn't any more likely to make his next shot. What it actually was, was evidence for the hot hand all along. Because when you are shooting 50% and you take out those heads and tails and you look at what happens heads after heads, you should be shooting lower than 40, 42%, 42%, right? like roughly.
2: right? And, and I believe somewhere in, in either your book or the Miller paper is the advantage of the hot hand is something like 13%? Yeah, I mean, if
3: you look at the difference, like if if, if you look at the difference of what we thought to what we think now um, or what some people think now, it's like 12, 13 percentage points. And the difference is huge. Like in the NBA, the difference between uh, – in the NBA, the difference of 12 points is the difference between Steph Curry and a league average shooter. So, so we now, you know, have reason to think that, you know, not only – can we believe in the hot hand? But it actually might be a pretty sizable effect. Now, you know, this is I think there are reasonable people on both sides of this debate. And that is what was so intriguing to me is that we have very smart people, brilliant minds who have been thinking about this for a very long time. And, you know, you could come out to to, to thinking about this in different ways. And I think we still are like I think we are still trying to think about what we should think about the hot hand.
2: So I spent a lot of intellectual energy thinking Gilovich and Tversky were right, and then when Josh and Adam's paper came out, I was skeptical, and then I read as much as I could up until the formulas, which is incomprehensible, (laughs) and then had a conversation with him, and then had him on the show, and suddenly it's like, you know what? He convinced me the hot hand is real, and now that I've spent so much mental energy on this, and I'm committed to this at this point, my uh, cognitive dissonance is—I I don't want to. Anybody- it's crazy, and I don't want to. I don't want to flip. I can't flip again. I'm locked in. If you could prove that it's not real, best of luck to you. But I'm—I'm I'm tapped out of the debate. Well, imagine writing a book about it. But
3: <laughs> but but that was actually what was so intriguing to me about all this, because you know, at the Wall Street Journal, what I have learned is that every great story needs tension. Right? Tension mm-hmm. is really what makes stories, and I just couldn't believe how much tension there was in this fight over an idea right here was something that we all thought to be true a belief only to be told that it wasn't only to be told that actually maybe it was and that that was just so irresistible to me and so th- the narrative itself is great and then what i try to do in this book is apply the lessons of that narrative very widely right because that's why these people have been studying the hot hand for so long it's not because they wanted to argue about whether or not the hot hand is real it's because it has these implications far beyond academia farther beyond basketball right like they sort of apply
2: everywhere It's quite fascinating. So I mentioned to you I read this book on vacation. I plowed through it in a a day and a half. I really enjoyed it. It fits in well in the sequence of sort of uh, related to Moneyball and related to some other things that are uh, about sports, the the first chapter uh, of the Undoing Project about Daryl Morey. So – I got to ask you some questions about the book because there's some really, really interesting things in here. Please, and also you called it "wonky beach reading," which I think is the best description of the book I've
3: heard so far. It really tickles me to hear that.
2: I, I mean, that's what it was to me. I was sitting on the beach. I'm
3: like, this is good wonky fun, and I wanted it to be. I wanted it to be something that like anybody could read, right? Like, if right. You, you don't need to be a mathematician, it, right? Exactly, and and you could read it on a beach, which which I love reading books on the beach.
2: So, so first question is. The, first of all, I like the arc that you tell. This is told as a story throughout time where there's this belief, and then uh, an academic research challenges the belief, and then subsequent research challenges the challenge. Why in the beginning did it seem like there were the academics on one side and everybody else on the other? Because the academics were the only people
3: who were saying that everybody else was wrong, right? Um, and you know, that was the beauty of their paper was that it challenged something that is so universal. There's this fundamental belief in the hot hand that's in the original paper. They polled basketball fans and NBA players and like something like 90% of them said, of course that there is such a thing as the hot hand, right? Like if you had asked me the one time in my life that I was not completely terrible at basketball uh, was in high school and I scored more points in one quarter of one game than I had in my entire career combined. There was something magical about that day that I still remember now. And it would never have even crossed my mind that this thing didn't exist because I, I thought that I knew what I felt. And not until reading, you know, hundreds of papers over the course of like four decades that I realized that like everything I thought I knew might be wrong.
2: Huh. So, so let's talk about some real specific examples from the book that are fascinating. Uh, and let's start with Spotify and Apple iTunes. Their random shuffle. Is much better when it's less random. Explain that.
3: That's right. So, a few years ago, uh, Spotify had this problem, which is that they kept hearing from users that the shuffle function was broken. And the problem is that it wasn't actually shuffling their music. So, sometimes you would hear the same artist twice in a row, or you would hear the same song twice in a row sometimes. and. People got so mad about this that they accused Spotify of almost being corrupt, of like (laughs) trying to curry favor with record labels by playing their artists more. And the very curious thing about this is that Apple actually had the same problem a few years before that. And there's this clip of one of Steve Jobs' keynote speeches when he is introducing a feature called Smart Shuffle. And like what they had to do essentially was change the randomness Algorithm. People thought that it simply couldn't be random when it was. The fact is, though, that pure randomness is hard to understand. And sometimes pure randomness means you hear the same artist twice in a row or the same song twice in a row. It's like
2: like getting six heads in a row, flipping a coin. It's the same thing.
3: It's actually not what we want out of our playlist, right? And so what Spotify did was they tweaked their code. They evenly distribute songs and artists over the course of a playlist so that. It's random the way that we think about random. So really what they did was to make it feel more random. They actually had to make it less random.
2: Make it less technically random. But as a listener, randomness means that after, and you use the Billy Joel example, but after a Billy Joel song, instead of hearing another Billy Joel song, I want to hear U2 or Push Stars or Prefab Sprout or Elvis Costello or, or Now I'm Revealing Maya. Playlist, but you don't want to hear the same artist twice in a row. And what the companies had to do was wrap their minds around
3: the way that humans really think, right? Like there was no amount of money or engineering talent that could solve this problem. There was something about the way that randomness paralyzes the human mind that the companies had to come to grips with. And so they could have been stubborn and said, no, of course, this is random. This is how randomness works. But what they did was they gave their users what they
2: wanted. Right. People don't want randomness. They want variety. And whether it's random or not is is almost irrelevant. Let's talk about the NBA Jam. The people who created that game took advantage of the hot hand and Streak's Tell us a little bit about that. So NBA Jam was developed by this game designer named Mark Tremell,
3: And when Mark Tremell was a kid, there were three things that he loved. He loved basketball, and he loved video games, and he loved fire. He was actually a bit of a pyromaniac. Right. And he was able to combine these three childhood loves into the biggest hit of his life. So I grew up playing NBA Jam. I am right around the same age as Steph Curry. And so I know that... NBA Jam machines were sort of ubiquitous in our childhood. They were everywhere. And what I did not know while we were both playing NBA Jam is that NBA Jam was one of the most lucrative, successful arcade games ever made. In the first year of its existence, it made a billion dollars in quarters.
2: And this is but orders of magnitude bigger than anything else before. Ginormous
3: to the point that, like, the people who were running the company, when they saw the numbers in the test arcade, they just refused to believe them. They thought this has to be a typo. Like, there's no way that these kids are playing NBA Jam so much. And yet they were. And part of that is because it was a basketball game and it was fun. And you could do crazy things like somersault over the basket and throw down breathtaking slam dunks and foul anybody you wanted. But really, what we wanted to do was catch fire. So in NBA Jam, if you make a few shots in a row, you hear the announcer for the game say, he's heating up. And then if you make your next shot, you hear he's on fire and the ball turns into a fireball. And what happens when you're on fire is that you cannot miss. And that was (laughs) compelling to so many people. Like it was this amazing example of Mark Trammell, the childhood pyromaniac, still playing with fire. And to me, I think he sort of single-handedly brainwashed this generation of impressionable young minds into believing the concept of the hot hand because when you were heating up when you were on fire you can't miss that that, that's really quite fascinating
2: let me go over a couple of other issues of the hot hand i have to ask you about shakespeare capitalized on the plague you have to explain that well this is oddly timely now right
3: yes which is (laughs) uh kind of terrifying um shakespeare was never a metronomic writer. So scholars for a very long time were not exactly statisticians, believe it or not. And when when they would look at like 24 Shakespeare plays, if, if he wrote them over the course of 12 years, they said, okay, Shakespeare wrote two plays a year. <laughs> in fact, that's not remotely true. Shakespeare ran hot and cold. He wrote in streaks. And one of the great hot streaks of his career was when he wrote King Lear Macbeth, and Anthony and Cleopatra in this very concentrated amount of time. Some scholars believe as short as two months, which is crazy, right? Um, and the reason he was able to write those plays, and the reason those plays were such a success, was that it happened to be a plague year. And the plague actually worked to his advantage in very odd ways. But the plague was this force that shaped Shakespeare's life from the very beginning. Like, he probably should have died when he was a kid of the plague. Um, it, was, it was just always around in London. And to me, that it, it spoke so neatly of the hot hand, because the hot hand is not this random occurrence. It's this collision of talent and circumstance and a little bit of luck. And sometimes circumstance appears when you least expect it. Sometimes it's
2: the plague. So let's talk about that luck, creativity, uh, and circumstance collision. Some people have put forth the theory that even human careers, you will have creativity in bunches. And most people or many people's most productive work over the course of their lifetime comes in a very narrow sort of era. Ex- explain that. And not only their most
3: productive work, their most memorable work. There's a statistical physicist at Northwestern named Dashan Wang who tried to look at this idea, like, is creativity clustered? Do our hits come in bunches? And that's really hard to do in a lot of industries because there's just not great data, right? And so what he tried to do was try to put some objective numbers to subjective issues of taste, right? So for movie directors, that's IMDb ratings. For scientists, that's Google Scholar citations. For artists, it's auction prices. Now, these are not perfect metrics, but they're like about as good as we could do given what we have. And what he found was that Uh, if you tell him what your best work is, what your highest rated movie, or what your paper that was cited the most by other academics was, he can find the second and third best work. And It's because those works come together. Like, they build on top of each other. And we have these hot hand periods in our careers. And in those periods, we tend to produce the work that endures and that other people remember.
2: So let's talk about movies. use the example of Rob Reiner, who has written or directed some of my favorite films. He had a streak that was really quite astonishing, didn't he? The
3: first few movies he made were Spinal Tap and... The Sure Thing, and Stand By Me. And those were all successes in their own way, whether it was critically or commercially. And it sort of earned him the runway to make a fourth movie. Now, all three of those movies were movies that nobody wanted him to make, and they were huge hits regardless. They were these delightful contradictions. And he had this conversation with a studio executive around this time when he's trying to figure out what he wants to make next. And the studio executive says, We want to do anything you want to do, right? Basically, like, you're hot. We want to be in business with you. Carte blanche. What is it that you want to do? And he says, you don't want to do what I want to do. And she says, no, really, just tell us, what movie do you want to make next? And he says, no, really, I'm telling you, you're not going to want to make this movie. And she says, just name the movie. And he says, the movie I want to make is The Princess Bride. And she says anything but The Princess Bride. And that sounds crazy now because right. The Princess Bride is this cult classic and one of the most beloved movies ever made, right? It was written by William Goldman who had written Butch Cassidy. He had written All the President's Men. Like you could take his grocery lists and, and win an Academy Award if Didn't he if write he made them. Marathon Man also? He's just the he, He's got writer. like he's a run of,
2: the... of, and and if you've never read- um, His screenwriting books, this, right? The screen, and his Confessions book. of a Screenwriter or The Screen Trade. He's the guy who has popularized the phrase, he's no longer with us, but he popularized the phrase, nobody knows anything.
3: Which is a good thing to think about when you're uh, trying to write a book about people who think they know everything, So
2: so following those three movies, The Princess Bride does really well. And then what was next? Harry Met Sally, a giant smash. Um, Misery and A Few Good Men. Misery was a, a, a Stephen King book that... Nobody expected that to be a great movie. Absolutely. And then A Few Good Men is just a nut. And he still continued to make movies that are still well-liked beyond that. He was able to elevate
3: his career to another level, right? And I have to say, like, I have run this theory by Rob Reiner. He doesn't exactly agree. What he remembers from this period is it was still so hard to get The Princess Bride made. But to me, that's actually proof of the hot hand that was shaping everything. Because if he remembers it was still so hard, and it was that hard, It simply would never have been made if he weren't hot.
2: The Princess Bride had been attached to a number of other producers and directors, including some really giant names in Hollywood, and it was almost a cursed screenplay. It just couldn't get done. It was the great white whale of Hollywood. I mean,
3: Truffaut tried to make it, Norman Jewison, Robert Redford tried to direct it and star in it, and still nobody could get it made. Goldman liked to tell this story that One studio had bought the movie and was fired the next weekend. Like (laughs) nobody could get this movie made. And you could argue that like if uh, Rob Reiner knew about this, maybe he wouldn't have. And even when he went to Goldman to try to get his permission to make The Princess Bride, he was terrified. And Bill Goldman opens the door and says, The Princess Bride is my favorite thing I've ever written. Like, don't screw it up. And he was able to get permission and he was able to make the movie. And I think we are all luckier for it.
2: Quite amazing. Let's talk about how the NBA is adapting to the idea of uh, behavioral economics. You wrote a really interesting column about, quote, the renegade executives of Houston who shook up sports management. Tell us about those guys.
3: Well, they haven't had a great few months since that story came out. But um, a couple months ago, my colleague at the Journal, Jared Diamond, and I, Jared covers baseball, I cover basketball, we went down to Houston to have lunch with two really smart executives there. One is named Daryl Morey, and he's the general manager of the Houston Rockets. The other is Jeff Lunau, who was the general manager of the Houston Astros. And we just thought it would be fun to get them together and just talk about how much their sports have changed. And it was fun and it made for a really interesting story. And uh, about a week later, Daryl became the most interesting man in geopolitics. He was already (laughs) the most interesting man in sports. And I love Daryl, but um, he set off this feud between the NBA and China with this tweet supporting Hong Kong.
2: And back up a little bit. So he got his uh, graduate degree from MIT and MIT has a really deep relationship with Hong Kong including lots of students and I think they have a, a satellite school there as well well and also the MBA has this
3: long running financial relationship with China right i mean China is the engine that is powering the future growth of the league it's the by
2: global fall. growth outside of the US oh
3: yeah it's the most important foreign market and like the league has always cultivated China like over the course of 3 decades or so and like this one tweet Imperiled that relationship overnight. I mean, to this day, I mean, the NBA is still not on CCTV. Um, so a lot has changed. Um, but was it know,
2: really a two or three hundred million dollar tweet? It it was a lot of money. I
3: mean, this the the You know, Adam. They Silver, canceled the preseason games, right? They played the games, but um, but they weren't broadcast. Right, and 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 NBA Commissioner Adam Silver said that he thought the loss could be about like four hundred million dollars. So, um, so it was a lot of money, but like you know, the, it it was a very fascinating issue because um, it pitted uh, like American democratic norms of free speech against like trying to do business in China. And I right. think this is something that like every company is going to have to be dealing sure. with at some point. And um, it was just sort of this like dry forest, and I think Daryl's tweet turned out to be the kindling that nobody really thought would blow everything up, but it kinda did.
2: So we were talking about film earlier. I think a lot of people don't realize how much of American film is now funded by foreign investors, including China. Especially China. And so what, what happens is you end up with the bad guy being the Russians, never the Chinese, and that's a direct function of who's writing the check.
3: It's, and, and to me, it was just, it was, it was of course, Daryl was involved because Daryl is, I, mean, <laughs> I, 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 I love the guy. I've written about him as much as I've written about anybody in the NBA. He's so smart and so interesting. And he's this real renaissance man of the NBA. If you were to ask me, like, which NBA executive would unwittingly start something like this? Like, of course, it would be Daryl because Daryl is in the middle of everything.
2: <laughs> and he was twice NBA executive of the year. I don't think he's going to win that this year.
3: Uh, well, he might. I mean, it it, it it depends. I mean, it's voted on by other executives. and I'll, and I'll take the other side of that bet. I'll <laughs> what, even lay two to one odds. On it, yeah, I'll give you two to
2: one odds. <laughs> 40%. That's the, right. the
3: interesting thing about Daryl winning that award is that that's an award voted on by your peers. And for a very long time, I think there was um, resistance among NBA general managers to acknowledge that Daryl is this really smart guy. And he was using statistics and analytics and information in really
2: interesting ways. Can't argue with success. Speaking of success, let's talk about Steph Curry. I, I love the story in the book. How he's pretty good at basketball, have you heard? Not bad. Yeah. And I, I understand he's taking more shots from behind the line, so that's a thing. The story about how he lights the Knicks up. Um, Do you remember that game? No. No, I don't. And if I saw that game, I have suppressed the memory, like so many other losses the Knicks have suffered over the years. But He's a guy who's essentially on the bench half the the game. He doesn't have the green light to just toss up three-pointers. What happened in that one game with the Knicks? Yeah, the through line
3: of Steph Curry's career until a certain point of his life was that nobody really thought that he could be as good as we now know him to be. Um, He was lightly recruited out of high school. He went to tiny Davidson College, even after coming out of Davidson, where he had this incredible, unforgettable run in the NCAA tournament in 2008. You know, he was the seventh pick in the NBA draft. There were lots of questions about whether someone who was as small as him and shot three-pointers as much as him could really be like a force in the NBA. And those questions kind of lingered until this one night in February 2013.
2: Let me interrupt you before we get into that night. So, as a Knicks fan watching Jordan and the Bulls dismantle them season after season, the the Bulls always had um, somebody—Steve Kerr, Hodges, somebody—who was an assassin from mm-hmm. behind the three point line, and it forced the floor to be spread. So they couldn't. If you're going to collapse on Michael Jordan, he's going to find the open man, and it might be a three pointer. So think twice about it. That was a very specific tactical decision. Now tell us what happened with uh, Curry uh, and the Knicks that night. So uh, so Steve Kerr was the three-point
3: shooter around Michael Jordan. What if Michael Jordan were the three-point shooter, right? That's sort of the question that um, has become prevalent in the NBA over the last few years. This was a night uh, that... Nobody thought would be Steph Curry's breakthrough, his coming out party. The night before, the Golden State Warriors had played in Indiana. They had gotten into a fight. Steph Curry was actually involved in the fight. And if you watch the clip now, it's kind of amazing because he charges this guy named Roy Hibbert. Twice Se- his size. Seven foot two and weighs <laughs> two of Steph Curry's, right? And what happened is exactly what you might think happened, which is Roy Hibbert just sort of brushed him aside. <laughs> For his entire life, Steph Curry's great disadvantage was had been his size, Right. But for this one night, it was his improbable advantage. He was too small to do any real damage in a fight of NBA players. So they fly to New York that night.
2: No, So no suspension for him. He's not
3: suspended. Other players on his team are, however. Steph Curry is fined $35,000. And nobody has ever been so fortunate to lose so much money because right. <laughs> the Warriors get to New York. And they just don't have their full team, right? They they're are only a certain number of guys who can play. Now something else happens before they get to Madison Square Garden, which is very funny in retrospect. Steph Curry, during Warriors road games, always takes the second of three buses from the team hotel to the arena. There are three buses. Steph's always on the second. Is that one.
2: just superstition or science? Also seats? timing. So like yeah.
3: he wants to be at the arena a certain time and he wants to warm up at a certain time. And getting there on the first bus is too early, and the third bus is probably too late. This day, for some reason he can't remember, he misses the second bus. He takes the third bus. What happens when the third bus leaves the team hotel? Gets pulled over by New York City cops on the way to Madison Square Garden. So now he's missed his normal bus. His now bus, he's missed his normal bus. His third bus gets pulled over on the way to the garden. He's rushed. He's late. He's gotten into a fight the night before. He's down $35,000. And what happens that night is that he has the single greatest shooting night of his career. He scores 54 points, plays all 48 minutes. He doesn't come out of the game. He makes 11 of his 13 three-pointers. Nobody in the history of the NBA, let alone him, had ever taken so many threes and made so many of them in the same game. And this was really an epiphany for Steph Curry and for the Warriors generally, and actually for the whole NBA, because what they were able to do after that night is build a team around Steph Curry's Remarkable ability to shoot a basketball,
2: and he's only gotten better behind the behind the line. Oh my god! Yeah. Since then,
3: before that game, he averaged like 18 points and took five threes a game. Since then, he averages 26 points and he takes 10 threes. He's won two MVPs. The Warriors have won three championships. And the most remarkable thing about all of this um, is that it took the NBA so long
2: to figure this out. Like. Three
3: is worth more than two. It's in the name of the shot, right? It's three 50%, pointers. Fifty percent.
2: It's not just a little. It's worth one and a half times a regular shot, but it's not one and a half times as difficult, or or is it? There's a huge incentive to shooting three pointers. Now it
3: is more difficult. But not if you're Steph Curry, right? Steph Curry is a 45% shooter from three. And the name of the game now is shoot as many three-pointers as possible. And the game was sort of going there anyway. But whether or not the Warriors would have built around Steph Curry, I'm not sure they would have without this game.
2: Are we going to have to move the three-point line?
3: We might. You know, I, I think that there there is talk about like a potential four-point line. Um, there is talk about That'd moving the three-point line. But we're getting to a point now where um, about 10 years ago, the number of three-pointers in the NBA game accounted for about 22% of shots. Now we're at about 35% of shots. The number of threes per game has doubled over the course of 15 years. I was at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference recently and asked someone with a team, like, what is the upper limit here? Like, when is when do you get to 50%? a point of diminishing returns? Well, the Houston Rockets are taking 50% of their shots right. now. So, like, w- w- for a single team, how high could you get? And this person, really smart, wonky, analytical, mathematical, says that he has studied the numbers and he thinks that it's sixty five percent of the team shots as three. So like by those standards, we're nowhere even close to the end of this.
2: I'm trying to think of how you would move the line back with without Unless you make the line, you give up the corner shot, which so is the best location shot. The corner,
3: corner three pointer is the most efficient shot in. You're the closest, basketball. and it's You're the most, amount and of points. it's still worth three points. Right. right. I mean, there are some funky things that you could do. Like you could make be, an arc. You could make an arc. You could you could add a four point line, but move the three point line in so that you actually uh-huh. make every shot worth the same amount of points. Right now, there is this huge. Uh, incentive against shooting mid-range shots. Right. Because they're worth two points and you generally shoot hard. them at the same rate right. as three-pointers, right? Yeah, it makes so no sense. How could you sort of um, incentivize people to take those shots is that you change the value of them. Now, I think there are people in the NBA who are encouraged that even though teams are shooting a whole bunch of threes now and all of the good teams are shooting threes, there's not really a homogenous style of play. They're getting those three-pointers in different ways. So right. there is some variety Um, But the end result is the same. Like, the name of the game now is how many three-pointers can you
2: take and how many of them can you make? So let's talk about somebody that you wrote about after Kobe Bryant's passing, but I'm familiar with from Michael Lewis's book, The Undoing Project, and that's Shane Battier. He's a guy that would be assigned to cover the best scorer on the other team. And if you look at his stats, they're really nothing – What does a guy like Shane Battier mean to the new version? And, of course, he was on the Houston Rockets under Daryl Morey. But what does a player like that mean to the new version of basketball's equivalent of Moneyball?
3: Just about everything. Really? I I, to me, uh, the beauty of Shane Battier is that um, he was someone who the NBA did not value properly because he did not have great stats, right? didn't score a lot of points. He didn't grab a lot of rebounds. He didn't dish out a lot of assists. But when he played, his team was better when he was on the floor, right? And there was no relationship that embodied this better than Shane Battier when he tried to guard Kobe Bryant. And so I talked to Shane after you know the tragic death of Kobe Bryant a few weeks ago um, because I wanted to know, like, what did he remember from those games when they played each other and you know what he what shane says is that when they played he always felt like he was captain ahab and kobe bryant was his moby dick and he was always chasing him and they had this strange cat and mouse game where it was not only physical it was not only on the court it was psychological Shane Battier knew that, like, trying to trash talk Kobe was the worst thing that you could do because it would get him don't wilded down. Down. Right, So he would, like, purposefully be modest. When he walked on the court with Kobe, he would, like, basically say, like, I don't even belong on the same court as you, man. Like, I'm this unathletic klutz. Like, you're going to kill me tonight. What Kobe knew <laughs> was exactly what Shane Battier was doing. So, like, Kobe wrote in his book, like, yeah, I knew Shane was, like, being modest because he thought that that wouldn't fire me up. And so they were going back and forth and they were so deep into each other's minds. That's funny. Um, And so their matchups were just these classic matchups. I mean, what Shane says is that nobody challenged him more than Kobe. He was like the pinnacle of challenge in his profession. The great thing about their relationship, the thing that I loved, was that they had no relationship. They never talked outside the arena. There was nobody who each of them respected more in terms of offense and defense, and yet it was all on the basketball court. Like, they never got a chance to, like, have that beer and just reminisce about all of these incredible matchups that they had.
2: So the plus and minus measurement is, is your team scoring more points when you're on the court, and is the other team scoring less points? What is your contribution— Battier turned Kobe Bryant into a negative for the Lakers. Sometimes, right? And so, sometimes.
3: So plus um, so plus minus is a stat that like over the course of one game may a little bit noisy. Sometimes, like sometimes it's not. Sometimes it actually shows a lot. But over the course of a season and over the course of a career, right. it's like hugely informative. And so like for the last few years, who has had the best plus minus in the NBA? It's Steph Curry. Right. And that sort of shows his impact on the game.
2: Hmm. Quite quite interesting. So one other person I have to ask about, uh, the number one draft last uh, year, Zion Williamson. Uh, how is he turning out? He was supposed to have a huge impact on the NBA. He got hurt uh, in the beginning of the season, and now he's back. Is, is this guy going to be worthy of a number one pick, or... Is it another top pick that goes bust? He's fantastic. <laughs> he
3: uh, There there are not many rookies in the NBA who change the fortunes of their team immediately. Like you could probably list them on one hand over the course of right. the last few decades. LeBron James, of course. For sure. Um, maybe Kevin Durant, maybe Anthony Davis. What Zion Williamson has done after missing the first few months of his rookie season with an injury is that he's turned the New Orleans Pelicans into like a real playoff, playoff contender. contender. Right? Yeah. So like if you look at the numbers, even the plus minus numbers, when he's on the court, they're destroying other teams, and so destroying. Yeah, like they are. Uh, they are going to be excellent building around him over the next few years, and so um, he sort of lost some of his momentum because he didn't play for a few months, and everybody sort of forgot about him. And yet we see him now, and it's like you are like you're seeing a superstar in the making. Like they're, he's going to lose weight, his body's going to change, he's going to learn how to play the game. Like you watch him on defense, he doesn't know what he's doing yet. Right. right? He's a rookie. He's 19 years but old. But he's, he's quick and he men. can jump. And he has brilliant vision. He can pass. He he. Everyone knew that he was this incredible dunker. But like his game is so well rounded. He is like going to be a sublime basketball
2: so, player. So so let's violate one of Daryl Morey's rules and compare him to somebody else. Who is Zion more like? Is he a Gianni, or is he going to be more like a LeBron? It's interesting. Uh, and you wrote a column. Giannis is now. Hitting from the outside, which makes him even more dangerous of a player. So he's probably been compared more to LeBron. Giannis, I'm pronouncing his name wrong. Is is he going to be more like Giannis or LeBron? Well, he's always been compared with LeBron because their body types
3: are kind of similar. LeBron's right? a
2: little bigger though, isn't
3: he? Oh yeah. Well, but but like Giannis taller, is, bigger, Giannis beefier, is thick. Oh right. my god, he's like girthy, right? The thing I think that makes him like Giannis is that. They're closer to the same age, and they belong to similar generations. So the amazing thing about Giannis this year is that he's probably going to win the MVP award for the second year in a row, and he's averaging about 30 minutes per game. They're 48 minutes in an NBA game, which means that he's only playing 30 minutes, and he's putting up stats that he's going to win the MVP. Uh, In his first few years, LeBron played like 42 minutes again. And I think uh, what makes Zion more like Giannis than LeBron is that his minutes are always going to be monitored for his career. Because of his body type, because of his age, because of the way the NBA has played today, he's going to play like 32, 33 minutes. And that means that like in the playoffs, hopefully, he will be fresher.
2: So fresher, you also want to maintain the ACL as a problem, maintain the Achilles. Like when you look at the injuries that people in the NBA tend to get – They seem to come in different waves as the game changes. Yeah, they're overuse injuries. Yeah. yeah. Like,
3: we're not used to seven footers jumping out and trying to guard three pointers and having to be as mobile as you do now. So, um, I think we're still learning a lot about that. Like, I think even the smartest teams know that they don't know all that much about injuries and injury prevention and like wearables and biometrics. Like, this, in some ways, is the next frontier of all of this stuff.
2: So, who do you think is the most interesting person in the league? And I'm going to ask you that. For players and for coaches or executives. Interesting in what sense? In any sense you choose. Interesting ha- in terms of their impact on the game? Interesting in their potential?
3: Well, you know, the real answer is Steph Curry because I just love watching him. I still find him just thrilling to watch. But but I actually, the most interesting guys in the league are the ones who were misvalued for some reason. And the evolution of the game um, has changed their value in the league and the premium that teams put on them. And so that tends to be like three-point shooters. And so not the Steph Curry types, almost like the like the Steve Kerr player type. So I've written a lot about these guys. I've written about Duncan Robinson with the Miami Heat, who went to a small high school in New Hampshire. He went to Exeter Academy. He went to Williams College, D3 Williams College in the NESCAC, transferred to Michigan, went undrafted, played in the G League, and now is the single best three-point shooter in the NBA. And it's a guy who, like, you know, basically the whole sport changed, and he adapted, and suddenly he becomes this really valuable player.
2: Did, did he adapt,
3: or did the sports change to exactly where he was? The sport evolved into his favor, right? right? And so, um, you know, it, 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 his story is really a fairy tale, right? But to, to me, what made it so interesting was that it's a case study in economics, right? And how mm-hmm. we think about how we value players. Not too long ago, Duncan Robinson was not valued all that highly. Now, like every team needs a Duncan Robinson,
2: and and that's the same sort of um, progression that took place in the NFL with uh, that Michael Lewis wrote about with the Blind Side, where there was an off tackle that was never an important. Role and then suddenly protecting the quarterback becomes so much more important following some rule changes and some just generally the way the game changed. Same sort of thing. Suddenly, what was a you know a league minimum salary role becomes a three, four, five million dollar role. He got really lucky that this evolved right into. His sweet spot. So, so that's a player. Well, and the teams got lucky too, because the only way to
3: win in professional sports now is to find the inefficiencies in the market, right? Sometimes that's the valuable role players. If if there's a. Um Cap if there's a salary cap. Correct. And you know, the greatest inefficiency are the superstars, right? Because in an open market, LeBron James is worth a whole lot more money than he's paid right now, right? Because his salary is capped. Of course. Like that's why you want superstars, is because like, you know, you you don't
2: You can't throw enough money
3: at them, it doesn't matter. LeBron James makes what, $35 million a year? Right. He's really a bargain, right? Because relative to what it means to the LA Lakers revenues. No, like relative to when you are building a team in the NBA, because there are a lot of other players who make $35 million a year because it's the most that you can pay. Gotcha. Like in an okay. open market, what's Lebr- a team would give LeBron $75 million, $100 right. million, dollars, right? Even if it were an open market in a cap system where the team had a salary cap, but the players didn't, and you could offer them whatever you want. You could make a case that like if there were an $100 million salary cap, you should give LeBron $90 million, right? And just filling in
2: with everybody else, yeah. With it. And a so, ha- like million dollars, s- a superstars
3: piece. are the great inefficiency, and and that's what basketball teams believe. But there are other ways to find value, and it's to find value on the margins. It's to get those guys like Duncan Robinson and Shane Battier, like guys who are not valued the way the market suggests they should
2: be. So there was another reference in the book that cracked me up: um, George Steinbrenner and the Harlem Globetrotters changed the NBA. You're going to have to explain that because listeners are going to think they misheard that. It has to do with the
3: formation of the three-point line. Like the three-point line did not always exist in basketball. It seems so fundamental to how the game is played today. But somebody dropped a somebody dropped a line on the court, this little strip of tape, and decided shots from inside will be worth two points and shots from outside will be worth three points. And,
2: and I misremembered this when I had my conversation with Daryl Morey. I thought it was in college first, but it wasn't. It started in the NBA first.
3: It actually started in a basketball league called the American Basketball League, which predated the American Basketball Association. Which then merged with the NBA. And so in the ABL in the 1960s, this short-lived, doomed basketball league that was run by the founder of the Harlem Globetrotters, they were the first to experiment with the three-point line in a professional league. And there were eight teams in this league. And who was one of the owners of this doomed basketball league but George Steinbrenner before he bought the New York Yankees. Which team did he own? He owned the Cleveland Pipers. Uh And there was this discussion uh, in one of their meetings. A couple weeks ago, I went down and found these papers in this archive at the University of Texas that sort of showed how this league was formed. And the guy who started the league was this guy named Abe Saperstein, who was this visionary marketing whiz behind the Harlem Globetrotters. He also started the abl and uh he had so much power that one day he missed one of their meetings where all of the owners came to be and uh they decided that they would try to strike back at some of his power by eliminating the three-point line so they took a vote do we think like we should have a three-point line and if we do like where should it be should it be at 23 feet should it be at 20 feet like where exactly and they decided to move the three-point line in So three feet, they move it in. They have this vote. Steinbrenner votes against it. He says, keep it where Saperstein wants it to be. But it passes by a 4-3 margin. Saperstein comes back to the next meeting, just completely ignores what happened in his absence, and set the line at 23 feet, nine inches away from the center of the basket. And where is the three-point line in the NBA today? 23 feet and nine inches away from the basket. It's exactly where
2: Saperstein decided it should be 60 years ago. That, that, that's quite fascinating. You would never guess that Steinbrenner has impacted not just Major League Baseball, but the NBA as well. There was a stat in your book that I found completely and totally insane, and I have to ask you about this. Which one? The Warriors have outscored their opponents by more than 4,000 points in Curry's minutes. In other words, when Steph Curry is on the floor over the past five years— talk about plus minus, that has generated an advantage for the Golden State Warriors of plus 4,000 points. That can't possibly be right. That's just- Are you questioning
3: my math, Absolutely insane. Uh, It is insane. And the most insane thing about it is that I believe they're being outscored by the other team when Steph Curry is not on the court. Right. So they're negative when he's not on the court. They're they're plus four thousand when he's on the court and the other team beats them when he's off the court. And so, so they, that just show, it shows like this incredible force that Steph Curry has become. So his plus minus has to be
2: just in crazy if that's the case.
3: Yeah. And that it's it, it speaks to um, why it was so brilliant to build a team around him. Like nobody thought that you could or that you should. And the Warriors have proved
2: everybody wrong. So, so let's talk about some, you mentioned going down to Texas and doing some research. Who was who the most interesting person you spoke to when you were researching this? And by interesting, I mean, who is the most surprising person that you came away from the conversation with? Hmm, I really didn't expect that. I talked to a lot of interesting
3: people. I talked to Steph Curry. I talked to Eugene Fama. I talked to David Booth. um,
2: Tom Gilovich, these, all, all of these. So I haven't had Steph Curry on, but that's my that's my list right there. That's your bucket list. <laughs> one not them, bucket list, that's checked off well, already. Well, Steph is on the bucket list. Yeah.
3: Um, I have to say one of the most interesting people I talked to is a guy named Nick Hagen, who I don't think you've had on this show before. I have not. Nick Hagen is a fifth generation sugar beet farmer on the border of Minnesota and North Dakota. And I took a trip out to his farm because um, I wanted to know, like, do farmers believe in the hot hand? Like, this is one of the reasons why this is one of the reasons why people have studied the hot hand is because it applies to all these different industries. And so um, I went out there during wheat harvest, and Nick is this fascinating guy because his family has been in the farming business for five generations, right? Going back to like his great great grandfather in the middle of the 1800s. And yet, he didn't think that he would enter the family business. He was a trombonist. He came to Juilliard to play music before he finally decided, actually I do want to go back into the family business and move back to this farm. And what he told me was like music and farming and basketball couldn't be any more different. Like music is more like basketball than it is like farming. So in basketball, the court is always the same, right? Like, you know, the parameters and farming, it's always moving. So like if the basketball court is a rectangle, farming is like one day it could be a rhombus and the next day it could be a trapezoid and the next day it could be a triangle.
2: Is that a function of weather, the market for the crops, a little bit of everything? Like
3: you do not have control. And so what he has learned is that basketball is about playing offense, right? Farming is about playing defense and trying to play the long game and keep in mind like all of these lessons That you've learned for all of these years. So, like, he doesn't chase patterns. He doesn't believe in the hot hand, even though he does believe in the hot hand. He doesn't behave as if he believes in the hot hand. Um, What he does is he trusts principles instead of chasing patterns. And to me, like, you know, I, I could talk to academics, like, I've been in NBA locker rooms. I've never been on a sugar beet farm before. And that was one of, like, the most thrilling parts of this book for me.
2: So, last question before we get to our favorite questions. You're simultaneously writing a book and working for the journal full-time, writing a column. Lots of folks have said that's impossible to do. You have to take time off. How are you able to balance both of those? It's not easy to write a book while you're also writing columns that are, if not on the same topic, certainly similar topics to what you're covering in the book a lot of early mornings
3: and long weekends and not taking vacation. And I I realized not too long ago that I haven't watched much television over the course of the last two or three years. There's nothing on. Yeah, and so so there was that. I gave myself a lot of time to write the book. It was like 18 months from start to finish of of writing. Um, So it was just sort of trying to find time whenever I could. But I have to say, like, I think that writing a book made me better at writing stories for The Wall Street Journal. It was sort of like cross-training, in a sense. Like, Mm -hmm. it just accessed a different part of my brain that was fun to play with that I never really get to exercise all that much.
2: Huh. Quite interesting.
0: Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance— At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more.
2: I have to tell you, I approached this book in with great trepidation for a couple of reasons. <laughs> First, I had already had Kahneman and Gilovich and Miller and a whole run of people on. And second, I really enjoyed the story you wrote about um, Adam and uh, Josh about their paper. And I'm like, oh, I hope this book doesn't suck. Because every now and then I'll start a book and I'm like, yeah, I can't finish this. But I really liked it. And I plowed through it, and you did a really nice job taking what's essentially this narrow, wonky academic theory and turned it into a compelling 280 pages worth of uh, discussion. It's a great narrative. Well, thank you, thank you for overcoming your trepidation, and I'm glad that it didn't suck. Um, it really didn't suck. It first of all, it, it I did say it's it's good wonky beach reading because yeah. because it was. I'm like. It's interesting enough and it's told in a sort of uh, the inherent tension. Um, I think the tension resolves itself towards the end. Well, it's funny. I I think writing for The Wall Street Journal actually gives me good training
3: for this because – when I write about sports for the journal, I write for people who know everything about sports and nothing about sports. Which is not easy to do. Yeah, and so you have to thread that needle. And that's what I wanted to do with this book. I wanted it to be entertaining to people who knew the saga of the hot hand and also right. people who don't even know what the hot hand is. Um, and so that meant like trying to reach as broad of an audience as possible without alienating that core audience.
2: And and if you describe the hot hand simply as streaks, everybody understands what a streak is. It's not, it's not that difficult to to grasp, but I thought you did a, a nice book and and I'll repeat on the air what I what I told you earlier. So you know, I always sift through the sources just to see um who they used. And I don't know a lot of people read the acknowledgments, but it's another version of the sources. Well they're the best part of the book. You should read the acknowledgments. That's
3: <laughs> the secret of any book.
2: And and I was shocked to actually find that you mentioned the Masters in Business episode with Gilovich. And that sent me back looking through the book and I just went through go down the list. Thaler, Kahneman, Miller. Um Booth, I, think I'm a, Fama. I think I'm a few
3: years into like a PhD in business from listening to this podcast. Uh, because I, like the beautiful thing is that not only have you had all of these luminaries come in here and be really open, but there are transcripts, right? Like you can read these interviews as if they're essays almost. They're biographies of these really brilliant minds.
2: What what's the only problem with the transcripts? is we, we don't clean them up. They just get cut and pasted up like that. And very often what sounds normal in a spoken sentence reads terribly. And I, But there are some people who speak in paragraphs,
3: and those people just blow my mind because I don't know how they do that.
2: I had a buddy in grad school who would write when we would have um, some, some final exams were essays and some were multiple choice. And his first draft of an essay is better than everybody else's third draft. His the way he thought and and constructed something was uh, shout out to Jeff, um was so just beautifully done, but and infuriating. And infu- right? just like, listen, the fact is that every draft makes a column better. And you don't have an infinite amount of time to do draft ninety seven. It's, all right, here's the research, here's the rough outline, here's the first pass, now I'm going back and changing the structure and adding more stuff, and now I'm on the second pass, and then usually there's a third or a fourth pass after that. But that's it. You don't have time to do and I know if you do five more, it just gets that much better. Tighter, faster, smarter, but you you can't do a month for a weekly column. It's a weekly, and so that's really the challenge um, and, and I found that that sort of thing really, uh, really kind of interesting. So uh, if you could speak fluidly the way we write, that would be a great thing. I have a pet theory, which Barbara Tversky told me isn't true, or at least she says there's no data that supports it. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. I think the part of your brain responsible for writing is different, perhaps adjacent, to the part of your brain responsible for speaking.
3: Oh, that's funny. I mean, I, I will say that I think Barbara Tversky knows more about the brain than I know about anything. So Tight. I would trust her judgment on that. But I do think um, there is just something about like, sometimes I will just sort of dictate things and go back to them later. And what I've learned actually is that um, sometimes the easiest way for me to write a story, I can be staring at a screen all day long right. and writing. And if I look at That document on my phone on the subway leaving work, it looks totally different and something clicks. It's sort of like that thing where you stare at a crossword for like 15 minutes and you can't get a few boxes and you come back to it a few hours later and it's just staring you right in the face. And like you're like, how did I not see this already?
2: Have you ever seen the word jumbles where there's a reset button? And you, it just changes the order of no, the letters? that's brilliant. So so that's on, on a phone or on a computer. I
3: have friends who, when they're writing stories, will just change the font of the story as they're writing because it makes them look at it in a completely different so,
2: light. So I don't know if you've... So you go through an editor when you publish. When I publish at Bloomberg, I have an editor who does that. When I throw something up on the blog, I'm just completely blind to my own typos. So sometimes I'll ask someone else to give it a quick through and and catch some things that I miss... But the technique that other people have talked about is take what you've written, cut and paste it into a different Word document or whatever your document, you know, word processor of choices, and change the size and the choice of fonts. For sure. And now you're looking at it with fresh eyes. Because you're not Because words seeing appear the same on thing. different lines, right? Yes. They're and not in just, the same order. It just changes your ability to see typos and spelling and grammar issues that you completely missed the first time. What some editors at the journal have taught me Like, we fact-checked
3: all all of our own stories, right? We don't have magazine fact-checkers. Yeah, but you have your own
2: bias there.
3: Well, sometimes what we do is if I have looked at a story a lot, I will fact-check from the bottom up. And so when you just read the story in a different way and you're checking things off as you go, your eyes don't glide over things in the order in which you know they're coming, right? Because it's flipped completely the opposite way
2: that that's really interesting so 18 months in the writing
3: is that is that how long you're working on this for the draft yeah i mean what I about worked, the
2: research part
3: oh yeah i worked on the proposal uh for a long time before that and the research part um, i hired a research assistant who downloaded every paper ever written about the hot hand and sifted through them and like summarized all of them so you
2: didn't actually read every paper i read the
3: summaries of all of them but i right. read all the major ones so i have i have in my apartment to like 500-page binders with double-sided printing of, like, every scholarly paper ever written about the hot hand because I wanted to, like, be really fluent in the literature and not miss anything.
2: So when when you talk about first we believe this, and then we believe that, now we believe this, is it really more of sort of a pendulum swinging? It goes from one extreme, then it goes to the other, and then when it comes back, it doesn't quite come back as far. and Maybe it settles. In the uh, eventually we come up with some understanding and neither so the initial paper clearly we see patterns where there are none even if the math is wrong about the basketball and then the pushback hey but the math is wrong doesn't mean the underlying thesis is wrong but there is a hot hand Um, and then it kind of comes back Well, there's a hot hand, but we weren't looking at how difficult the shot was. We weren't looking at the defensive intensity, and that changes the number. And then a few years later, oh, now we have the ability to look at that. And And it's a pendulum swinging because
3: of forces beyond our control. So the first paper- Meaning technology or- And the data that we have, right? I mean, the first paper was written using- the best data that was available back then. It Which looks, was terrible statistics. It looks primitive now, but yeah. at the time it was cutting edge. Like the reason they were able to write this paper is that the Philadelphia 76ers had a statistician. He was the only person who took note of the chronology of shots so he knew like what you would do after you made a shot or you made two shots or three shots nobody else was doing it at the time that seems crazy now because we know everything there is to know about any given shot in the nba right and we can look back many years and figure out anything we might want to know but that wasn't available back then the data that we have now was not available to the researchers in like their nerdiest wonkiest wildest
2: dreams or else they would have used it because they did so the 76ers had a statistician and no other team did? Was that was that close to Dr. J? What, why? You know, I don't know. I think uh, this guy named
3: Harvey Pollack was just sort of, uh, you know, one of his own. He was like a man before his time. And huh. he was nicknamed Superstat. Like everybody knew he was like this towering figure in analytics before analytics was like this buzzword in sports.
2: And, and yet it took decades to catch on. That's right. Qu- quite shocking. So I could keep you uh, all day, but I know I have to get to some of my favorite questions before we let you go. And I'm not going to ask you what you're streaming or listening because I know you're not watching TV, and I know some of the podcasts you've listened to. So instead, can I even ask you what your first car was? Did you ever own a car?
3: I drove a 97 4Runner in high school and college that uh-huh. used to be my dad's.
2: Solid Toyota truck. But I know nothing about kill. cars.
3: I am not a car guy. I right. have absolutely no interest That's in cars. That's
2: a generational thing. Is it?
3: I like driving cars. Like right. I like I like when I'm on the road, like renting a car and I take zip cars. I just I have no interest in like old Porsches or
2: Ferraris or right. anything. And in in the first couple of years of doing this, I started asking that question as a as a what'd you have for breakfast yeah. what was your first car just to do a voice check and then the answers became so interesting yeah. that i started weaving it into the these questions and then and as i interview younger people they're like why would i ever need a car I, between zipcar and uber who needs to own a car I'll tell you so, what i'm streaming go ahead big taylor swift fan oh really mm-hmm. um have you seen um uh, the the new netflix uh, documentary how how is that it's pretty great oh really yeah I, it's in my list. I haven't gotten to it. It's uh, there is a scene in there, and you will know what
3: scene it is when you see it. That's like really arresting. It's like one of the best things you'll see on TV all year.
2: Okay, I will definitely, uh, I will definitely check that out. What as so now? I'm going to ask you, what else are you listening to and and watching on uh, on on streaming services?
3: My streaming services, um, my choices are strange. I I fall asleep every night watching Netflix on my phone. Okay. And, Usually what I do is... When
2: I travel, I do that with the iPad. Do you?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So now I put in... My wife is sleeping next to me, and I have like an an AirPod in, and I fall asleep. And um, the show I've been watching over and over is this old... Not old, but old-ish show
2: called Gilmore Girls, which... I can't um, believe you said that. Why? I'm going to out myself. You're a Gilmore Girls fan? So last summer... Yeah. (laughs) So my my wife and her sister uh, have a house out in the Hamptons they inherited from their parents... And um there's always an argument about what we if we're out there what we're going to watch. And my my problem with them is that we'll argue over something, I'll give in to them and then they'll fall asleep and I'm watching something of theirs. And one day we were prepping to go out and I'm flipping through Netflix and I'm just Gilmore Girls, what's this? And my sister-in-law says, "I love that show." She goes, "In fact, That's the show that had Melissa McCarthy in it before anyone knew who she was. So we start watching an episode and two seasons through it – I still have like a dozen seasons to go. Well, the beautiful thing about that show is that it, it gives you material to fall asleep to
3: whenever you want. So it doesn't seem like a good show to fall asleep to because it's very fast paced. It's very like sorkin right? Very right? A, a
2: little bit. The dialogue is very The dialogue snappy. is very
3: snappy and it moves along quickly and mm-hmm. you would think like you don't want those voices in your ear before you fall asleep. But what I found is that it just sort of, I've seen them so many times that like they're sort of background noise and by the uh-huh. time I get to the end of the series, it's been so long since I saw the pilot and the first season
2: that I just go back to it and start it again. So <laughs> so I do that with two shows, one to watch and one to fall asleep with. Okay. I think Seinfeld's Comedians and Cars getting coffee, I, I have that to just roll over to the next show. But they're too short is the problem. Well, the great thing but about you no can't, can't watch them every minutes. day. You okay. have to, sure. like that's a little bit, you watch one or two a week and you go through the whole series. And by the time you finish the whole series... A new season comes out. That's right. And when that's done, you could start over. But the other show that you can—I f- have two shows to fall asleep to. One is The Big Bang, okay. which I've seen a million times. Sure. Another guest, uh, former writer, producer uh, of the show, and and then second, and I find this um, hilarious. My wife finds this annoying. There is a show on the Sci-Fi Channel called How the Universe Works. Oh, that'll put you right to sleep. So, so I'm. But those shows work on two levels. If you're watching them while you're awake in a well-lit room, it really is a very accessible way to reach some really interesting cutting-edge astrophysics, things that are changing that, like all sorts of fascinating discoveries that you just never will see in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. It's way out there both literally and, and physically. But second, you put that in a darkened room. Yeah. The uh, the guy who does the voiceovers, the voice, yeah. he's got. It's just uh, sonorific. His voice is so deep and soothing. It's I have almost to say, the
3: real TV equivalent of Ambien, and right. I would recommend this yeah. is food shows from other countries that are subtitled. So they're slow. There's classical music like Chef's Table, of France will flesh right. you right out like that. The one season will last you like a year of falling so, asleep. So
2: my, I always have this disagreement with my wife. She watches shows like um, Love It or List It or or Property Brothers. They engage your brain At, though. Is the problem? That, that's anytime there's an inherent te- tension and a conclusion, mm-hmm. your brain wants to stay awake till the end. So uh, to me, Deep Space what is more relaxing than a darkened screen and just the, the universe it just it's like sleeping under the stars but what's your take on Gilmore girls pretty great right uh, it's really well written I really like the characters I haven't gotten as deep into the show as you have sure um so it's you know as as you watch a show progress there are, there are always the opportunity to go the wrong way and derail a show and I'll cause a little controversy right now. So I've watched all of uh, The Marvelous Miss Maisel from the beginning. It's wonderful. Except, except when you watch the initial season, the initial season is essentially, what is it like for a housewife in the late 50s, early 60s to break into stand-up comedy in an era of very repressed speech? That's a fascinating topic and unfortunately, the show has been too successful because it kind of abandoned that theme. And ex- I don't care about going to the Catskills in the summer, even though I spent summers there as a kid. I don't like there was a whole run of the the in-laws moving to Queens, right. and that that whole thing was just the 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 B storylines. Um, and you could take a show like Seinfeld that would have four equal storylines and have them all go off. And they would interweave and all reach a conclusion at the end. I found the B storylines... You're lines, less
3: invested in, like, Midge's husband.
2: I, I don't care yeah. about him. Do or, those shows
3: feel similar to you, Maisel
2: and Gilmore Girls? There are elements that are very similar, sure. Well, they're written by the same person. That, so. w- that would make sense. That You know, I, I've noticed um, there was a British show I used to love uh, called Coupling, which is basically friends with some teeth. Like Friends was a milquetoast, lazy- But crooked teeth. No, I mean <laughs> I mean with a bite. Uh, but I I don't know if that's really true about the British dentistry anymore. But it, it was acerbic and nasty and funny. And it was written by a guy whose last name is Moffat, who later goes on to write a bunch of Doctor Who and a bunch of other stuff. And it's amazing how smart a writer, how entertaining a writer. But I think I kind of knew that some of the people associated with Gilmore Girls We're also associated with uh with miss mazel what what's so interesting about the show is uh melissa mccarthy's character is just so like you see the glimmers because i came to the show after she early already was a giant star yeah and you could see glimmers but even back then like oh she's gonna be hindsight bias she's gonna be fantastic yeah to, is it worth watching the rest of the show? Or am I going to oh, be absolutely. disappointed? And not only do you get to watch the whole thing, you get to see
3: Rory go to college and and come out of college. Right. But you know, Netflix did a revival last I, year. I saw. So there's. I like, haven't seen it, but I read about there's it. There's four episodes. They're about an hour and a half each, and so you can kind of catch up with them. About is 10 it years worth later.
2: it? Because the every it's good as an Arrested it's Development good. fan, I was warned off of the Netflix version.
3: It will uh, it will satisfy an itch.
2: Okay. All right. That works. Wow, that was a long answer to that. Question. Long Gilmore Girls, and you, um, thought, and you thought asking about streaming would be boring. Well, you told me you weren't watching anything. Oh, that's So true. that's yeah. that's why I was. A I few... watch old things. I watch Gilmore Girls. There you go. So you're not. There's nothing you're watching currently. Oh,
3: I watch, once I was done with the book, I, I caught up on Succession in like a weekend and loved right. it. Um
2: So I watched the first two episodes. Yeah. It I gets don't. Li- I don't like any of the characters, and I can't. I can't. You know. There's nobody I relate to. And it's like, wait, if I don't like any of these characters, if I'm not invested in any of them, if they can all get hit by a bus and I don't care, why am I watching this? I want to feel... And I know some people have said, well, I feel the same way about Seinfeld. There was a a lovable obnoxiousness about them. It's not... And the same thing with Curb Your Enthusiasm, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Aside from all the cringeworthiness, there's a certain appeal to the characters and... Everybody wishes. Well, everybody has a bit of Larry David in them. Well, right? well, you wish. So Larry David is nothing like Larry David. Larry, that is his id, right? right blown hard. up, and we all wish there are times when we could give voice. Like I, I come into the city on the seven, right? Go from the because tr- I don't want to go to Penn Station, so I'll I'll come in that way. And I am still, after years and years and years, astonished that this is literally the busiest subway stop in all of the New York City subway system and people haven't figured out to get the hell out of the way of the door. Really? Are you just paying? So- and I I want to... There was a great um, Seth Meyers before the new season came out where they have Larry David on and basically set Larry David loose on all the writers to be Larry David. And throughout the day... So one of the writers invites... People to his uh, home for dinner and Larry, no, no, you have to work with these people, they don't want to waste their Thursday night having dinner and it's just great to have Larry David there as a foil for your deepest darkest secrets. I have that sort of running internal narrative constantly. The best thing that I've
3: streamed recently probably is that um, I am a um, huge John Mulaney dork. Uh-huh. And um, I just think he's a genius. What he's is the he, up to 10 the different... Uh... There's so many. There are so much, like, I, I watch his talk show appearances because they're hilarious. The funniest thing on the internet is... Uh, he did an interview at the 92nd Street Y with Nick Kroll in their Oh Hello characters with and John they're Oliver.
2: right they are old old colleagues from way back when and it's an interview with
3: John Oliver and it's about 90 minutes um, John Oliver interviews them they take Q and A's and I cannot describe how just outrageously funny this thing is it is like it's it's i i think he is the funniest stand-up on the planet it's funnier than any of his stand-ups because the way that he can embody these characters is it's it's incredible i would watch it like i have watched it so many times and i like happily watch it anytime it comes all
2: right so i'm gonna put that on my list let me let me run through some of my favorite questions that otherwise uh people will yell and email me and 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 complain so Who were your early mentors? What journalists influenced the way you approach covering sports? There were a lot before I
3: got to The Wall Street Journal, but there was one guy at The Wall Street Journal named Sam Walker, who was the founding sports editor of The Journal, who is this brilliant and insane and insanely brilliant and brilliantly insane person who sort of set the bar really, really high. And so when I was an intern, when I freelanced for the paper for a while, even when I was a staff writer, it felt like every time you got a story into the paper, you were like, pole vaulting basically like you were trying to get above a certain point and um, I think that's why we used to hear a lot of the journal like we didn't know that you covered sports because we didn't but now I think people understand that we try to do something a little bit different and that's because of Sam I think he sort of taught me what a good story was and like to not be precious with my own writing and to just like let other people make it better so Sam hired me and and had this huge influence on my life
2: huh Let's talk about books. What are some of your favorite books? What do you like to read when you're not writing books?
3: Yeah, I, I mean, it's I, I'm a sucker for the Michael Lewis books. I like I think Moneyball is is still brilliant. And um, wh- when I went um, to visit Nick Hagan on the farm, we were talking as we boarded like his wheat combine. I asked him. Sometimes I write to classical music, and I asked him like, who should I be listening to? Like, who who is your favorite composer since he was at Juilliard and he played trombone? And he said. Um, you know, I know this is going to sound silly, but like the best guy is Mozart. And he's like, and, and I know like, you know, other people know Mozart, but like I know Mozart right. and like I appreciate him. And I sort of feel the same way about Michael Lewis. Like everybody loves his books, but like, you know, as someone who has tried to write a book along the same lines, like the stories that he finds, like on a sentence level, like everything about them—they're right. they're just brilliant. Like they just they hold up. And whenever I feel stuck, I might sometimes go back and and read some just a few pages from his books because like that voice, like it just gets in your head and it's I love it. I, I, I anxiously await all so, of his new books. So
2: Moneyball. Get, you want to mention another one of his, or and then other books you you like. Uh,
3: well I mean the blind side the undoing project um no I don't know i I, I must I, I I read these types of books I mean part of this book is like it is like using a social psych it is like using an idea from social psychology to explore the world and there are a lot of books along those lines and I think I read them at an impressionable age they really like sure they really became popular when I was like in middle school high school and like they were just sort of intoxicating to me and so oh. um, there are a lot of books like that I mean novels too like you know I loved the Sally Rooney book, Normal People, when it came out. Like, like everybody else in New York City, it seems. And but, um, but those the you know Moneyball and like the Michael Lewis Canon. That's that that's what really does it for me.
2: Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience.
3: It was well, I, I feel like I fail every time I write a story because, like, you know, you're writing a newspaper story that's a thousand words, twelve hundred words. Like, you've talked to a lot of people, you know all this nuance that you can't possibly pack into the story. And so, like, you know, every time a story comes out, like, I I feel like it, it's not good enough, right? But but one time I really failed it was actually not too long ago. Um, I wrote a, a, one of my like bajillion stories about the Golden State Warriors last year and it was right before the finals. And, you know, I needed something new to say about this team that I'd been writing about for five or six years. Um, and we have a daily newspaper and like, you know, give me a break. Not every story is perfect. And um, I was trying to uh, uh, express this thought that I had that the Golden State Warriors were the Golden State Warriors because there were like five um, really valuable players on that team. And you take out any one of them and the whole thing falls apart. It's a bit like a Jenga tower, right? Right. Um, and the way I phrased this in the story was like the Warriors are this dynasty because of Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Kevin Durant, Draymond Green, and Andre Iguodala. And the end was italicized, right? Because it was meant to say that like if you take out any one of their contributions, they're not the Warriors. That's not always the case with basketball teams. Like right. basketball teams are built around one or two guys. The 96 Bulls are the Bulls with... Pippen Jordan and Jordan, and Pippen, right. you could sort of substitute a lot of other guys, right? You can't do that with the Warriors. Um, the problem was that um, I forgot that, like, on Twitter and on social media, you can't italicize words, right? And so um, when this stuff ran on social media, when I wrote tweets that we could share from, like, you know, right. NWSA, um it, it appears as, like, the Golden State Warriors are good because of Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Kevin Durant, Draymond Green, and Andre Guadalla And this turned into, one day last year, like, the entire internet dunking on the Wall Street Journal because it read, like, the Beatles are good because of Paul... George, John, and Ringo, you know, like it but was But that's just, a
2: fair statement. Yeah, but it, it just it, it, Sure, it's it, Paul it, and John, but you know, they're not the Beatles necessarily without George and Ringo. But it made for it it looked like this very silly
3: sentiment. And I, I just felt terrible. I felt like when you have the entire internet like making fun of you for a day, you're right. just like, Oh god, I that's stuck. That right. That's fine. Um and so um what it taught me was like you, you kinda have to be careful and like every word actually matters. And also that like people forget about
2: things on Twitter after a few hours. Right <laughs> did half life is really short. Future reference and all capitalized yeah. is the equivalent, or in of, stars. Yes, right. That, that would have That's been good right. to know a couple months ago. All right. Well, I'll share my other uh, secret Twitter secret with you later. You'll you'll appreciate this. Uh, what do you do for fun? What do you do when you're not banging out uh, columns for the journal? Well, I can't
3: watch sports because sports is work, right? And my right. brain is always working. Um, I just wrote a book in my spare time, so I, I don't know all that much about fun. But one thing, <laughs> one thing that I love lately is that. Um, um, this is going to sound silly, but um, there's this YouTube channel from Bon Appétit, and I don't know if you're familiar with it. And I'm not a great home cook, but um, this these videos are like so magical and absorbing, really? and like um, th- there there are the the, the editors um, in the test kitchen and the recipe developers. Um, they're just really charming and like you sort of fall in love with them. No after kidding. A couple episodes. And oh, so I'm, I'm right. There are like there. new episodes like almost every day. And my wife and I, they're like 15 minutes, we'll just put it on and like it really like soothes me before I go to sleep.
2: Okay, so I'm gonna give you marriage advice oh. that I wish someone had given me many decades ago. Okay. My wife and I both like to cook. Yeah. And it's only fairly recently that we started on a Sunday night pulling a cookbook out and making a recipe from scratch and not just like a simple, you know, boil water throw pasta in. Like a full-blown Bobby Flay recipe. Mm-hmm. And we've developed over just a couple of years a few favorite things. We have a dinner party, we know exactly what we're going to make. Yeah. And I you're married how long now? Like 3 years. Okay. Had we been doing this 25 years ago, we would be fantastic chefs. We don't do it over the summer because that's always barbecue. Right. Um, but through – especially from like the late fall to early spring. And when, is it a new recipe every time? Just about. Oh, just a, Every good. now and then yeah. we'll go back to something and, and – so you build a repertoire. So, right. And very often it's like, wow, that's a lot of work and this isn't that good. Most of the time it's this was really good. And every now and then it's like, oh, my goodness, this is Who are your favorite chefs? Um I have to say I love the Bobby Flay cookbook. Okay. Uh, and we have like a whole shelf of a dozen – different cookbooks, there are a handful of people that try and work on, on basics, and I'm I'm embarrassed. Um, what is her name? She has a restaurant I really like out in the Hamptons called the Canal Cafe. The Something Gourmet, I'm drawing a blank. Had I prepped for this sure. question. Yeah. Um, I threw you off guard with the Bon Appetit. Right, YouTube absolutely. Now. But but play with that and okay. see That's if that does advice. anything for you because we've just and had a advice ton of that, fun like, with
3: it. Uh, it's actually... Um, Not only useful, but like fun. It makes you actually want to do it. Right.
2: And you start to look forward to, because usually Sunday night is I'm prepping for the beginning of work. No, you go shopping sometime over the weekend and then you do this. And of course, you have a bottle of wine open. Sure. um, And sometimes you're drinking a bit throughout. It doesn't have to be Sunday night, that just worked out for us. But uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, And our final two questions Uh, What sort of advice would you give a college grad who is interested in either sports or journalism? Um, to take advantage of
3: uh, their place in the world. So sometimes when the journal has interns, I always tell them this: that th- what they know, what their world is, is actually very different from the world of the people like running the Wall Street Journal. So like just by virtue of being 21 years old, you are on TikTok, right? And you talk to other 21 year olds, and you know what like this very interesting. Um, subset of people are interested in. And so like you almost think of your world as like this subculture to mine, like you are an anthropologist. And so the very first front page story I wrote for The Wall Street Journal was a few months after I graduated from college. And it was about this dance craze known as the Dougie which you might remember, there uh-huh. was this song, like, you know, teach me how to Dougie. And everybody in sports was doing it. And was, this, was this an A-head of It was, it was an A-head. And so, um, and I tell them specifically, like, you know, the A-head does not have to be about, like, you know, birding or something or something that, like, you think, Esoteric like people, and yeah, like, it can just be something funny about something in your life. And so, like, you know, the people running the Wall Street Journal did not know what the Dougie was, but I was 21, of course I knew what the Dougie was, right? And, like, you can take advantage of that. Like, what you know is actually pretty interesting.
2: Huh, quite, quite interesting. And what is it about the world of sports that you know today that you wish you knew? Now, normally I would say 20, 30 years ago, yeah, but years a couple ago. of years ago when you got started in in your career. Um,
3: that I should have taken uh, a single course in economics or psychology or statistics or computer science when I was in college. Mm-hmm. I graduated from school and like immediately recognized that what I wanted to do, I really needed more of like a quantitative background that I don't think I have to this day and I wish I knew how to write code and I wish I knew how to like really understand um, statistics because it has become like essential in sports now and really writing about sports like writing about sports fluently and finding interesting stories like you can really use numbers and then try to build stories around them which is something I hope I did in this book.
2: Well, quite fascinating. I really enjoyed the book. Thank you, Ben, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Ben Cohen. He is the NBA reporter for The Wall Street Journal and author of the new book, The Hot Hand, The Mystery and Science of Streaks. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes where you can see any of the previous 300 plus conversations we've had over the past five plus years. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Be sure and give us a review on Apple iTunes. Check out my weekly column on Bloomberg.com. Sign up for my daily reads on Ritholtz.com. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff who helps put these conversations together each week. Nick Falco is my recording engineer. Sam Shivraj is my booker slash producer. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to
0: Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry— and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com.